Okay. There we go. Yeah. So it's good. So thank, thank, thanks so much for taking time out to, to be with us. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Do I look good? Yeah. I look, okay. You look pretty good. <laughs> yeah, well, considering I just, I just put uh, what 40,000 miles behind me on the airline, I'm doing quite good. Yes, we've been watching you go from here, there, <laughs> everywhere around the world. Where haven't you been, Gerd, in the last month? <laughs> well, that's a good question. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> but you were just in San Francisco this week, correct? Yeah, I was in San Francisco this week and then in Moscow after oh, yeah. that for an innovation forum. That was quite interesting. Cool. Well, that's well, great. And thank you for carving out some time. And, and really, these little unpacking digital transformation sessions and, and episodes that Jamie and I do are really, you know, very self-indulgent. We, we want to learn about, um, you know, digital transformation and the impact that it's having on, you know, ourselves, organizations, societies, learning and development profession that we're both in. So, we're we're just really curious and 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 want to learn. So thank you for carving out the time and and, and uh, with us because it's welcome. great. You know, and so you know, with with being a futurist, and I know that that term kind of gives you some some uh, reaction, but but in terms of the the key future trends, what 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 should we be noticing now, Garrett? Um, and and why should we be noticing these things? Well, I. Uh... Well, digital transformation, of course, is a long-standing topic. It's kind of very popular now, right? After social media and big data, it's kind of a fashionable word, right? Right. Uh, and in general, I tend to not really give too much uh, credit to those kind of tags because for a lot of people, they serve as a way of, of uh, putting things into a drawer, right? <laughs> but, but really what digital transformation is and, and what has been happening is that the same stuff that happened in the music business and in media and publishing and so on is now happening to the other industries. Uh, because they are much harder to uh, transform, for example, banking or yeah. energy or, or education or uh, politics, right? And they're, now fall, they're all following the same path. You know, for example, in the music business, uh, the transformation included the intermediaries becoming less important. Uh, the, the really important intermediary now is Apple, <laughs> not, right. not, not Sony or EMI or so, right? And a lot of people have started forgetting who those labels are, actually, even though we probably still need them. Uh, so, And that same thing is going to happen to the banks, right? So, for example, the intermediaries, the banks, they will become less powerful because there's other ways of doing things, and they will be like 90% cheaper. Right. So uh, the digital transformation topic to me is, is something that in the next five years, we're going to see this entire transformation. Everything that used to be computing becomes mobile, um, mm -hmm. and uh, that's obvious. And, and uh, everything that used to be intermediated is going direct, for example, writers, authors, banks, publishing, uh, and, of course, energy is going direct You know, with the integrate and, and solar energy and so on. So things are going direct, which lowers the price. Uh, a lot of things become abundant, uh, which is a very big shift in digital transformation. So music used to be scarce. You paid 20 bucks for a CD. Now mm. you pay seven bucks for Spotify. Huh? Right, uh, right. And it's abundant. <laughs> and the same goes for Netflix. You know, we have abundant movies. We have abundant. Uh, pretty soon we'll have abundant uh, transportation with the likes of Uber and many other companies who are providing transportation to anyone and, and much cheaper than before. Right? Right. Then we'll have abundant financing through peer-to-peer -peer funding. And then we have abundant energy once we solve the solar battery problem, right? So it's abundance, you know, as Peter Diamantis says in his book, abundance, that, that's kind of an ultimate destination, which is primarily a good thing. It's a little bit hard for companies to deal with abundance because it, it lowers the price, right? Right. 
Yes. Well, it lowers the price, and there's something about complexity there that that is just um, I don't know. I've noticed that paralyzing in many ways um, for the industry for for people. You know, when you talk about big banks or big organizations, there's this paralysis or not even recognition really that that things are going this way. Like it's the industrial revolution of our time. Well, let me tell you, nobody's as bad as the music business. Oh, really? Uh, the music business has done the worst possible job of digital transformation because first, they refuse the customer, which is the consumer in this case, uh, to have a claim for transformation. They basically just said, oh, we know what you want, but we don't give a, a, a shit about it, right? We, we're just yeah. going to continue. And then we'll prevent it. We'll sue people for doing this, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and then in the end, they realized it's unstoppable. So then they went to companies like Spotify and extorted them from advances, right? So no yeah. matter how you how you look at it, uh, their response has, has been really the worst case. So if you're looking at banks and or even movie studios, right? right. Um, or transportation companies or hotels, uh, they can learn from this and say, well, first, it's inevitable. Second, we can compete because we have something to offer. Uh, third, the world has changed, but I still have value. Um, and I have to get with the program and adapt. And I, I think that's that's going to happen across all industries, whether you're in the mining business or energy. It just takes longer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, the mayor of Toronto here, he uh, had a good response to Uber because they've been fighting back and forth in the city hall, of course, about it. And he said, you know, it's already here. We can't stop it. So let's learn to, to work with it and figure out a way that it can be part of our day-to-day -day without all of these troubles that they're currently having. And I well, thought... Well, to be sure, there's a there's a challenge for Uber and Airbnb and the other large companies that are in this turf right now as well, in that these these guys are very good at disruption. They're not very good at construction. No. Uh, and they have to learn that. Uh, if you're in the business of transportation and Uber is in the business ultimately of automated transportation, right? Um, you have to also construct an ecosystem that works for everybody else, not just for yourself, right? So, mm -hmm. <laughs> because, you know, you can say what you want about the old players like taxi companies. And so they do have an ecosystem that involves things like unions and, and the rights of drivers and stuff, right? Yeah. And you can't just completely ignore that. So, uh, they will have to compromise and everybody else. And ultimately you find a solution that's going to be, you know, 70% cheaper and 5% and 50 times as fast for everyone. And then once you have that, then you have creative real lasting value. So you don't, you don't create just like a wormhole, like a shortcut, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is that, where, is that where the exponential, you know, I know you've spoken about, you know, that's exponential growth and the ability to sort of grab that abundant, um, exponential opportunity and is, is that where you know the mindset of organizations and leaders and organizations should shift to well I think the biggest shift is with exponential as, as uh, Kurzweil has explained many times even though I don't I don't believe in some of his singularity theories uh, or, or wisdoms I say uh, even though he's a very bright guy I, I admire him but I, I don't agree on that point but but the exponentiality has, has is new because until now you know, if you double 0 0.01, you still get to nothing, which is 0, 0 0.2, right? Um, and that has been the same case for a long time in technology. But now you get to the point where if you double 4, you get to 8, and that's only 
18 months, 24 months, you know, Moore's law, basically, right? Uh, and then you double again, you get to 16. So you get to very wide distances now. And so yeah. you can basically say 2015, we doubled from two to four. And next year, we're going to go from four to eight. And the leaps will be tremendous, like automated language translation, artificial intelligence and consumer products, uh, the Internet of Things. You know, we're talking about things that sound like science fiction becoming reality. And therefore, companies don't really have the option to say, well, we wait and see, like the paperless office, you know, that sort of thing. Uh, We just wait and see and we observe and then we change. You can't do that anymore because the leaps will be exponentially larger. For example, in medicine, uh, if you you don't understand the power of uh, genomic editing and personalized medicine, you may very well be out of business in five years. Yeah, that's very true. Now, so for some people who might be watching and not know what singularity means or deals with, do you mind giving us an explanation? Yeah, the singularity is a theoretical point in time to where the computer's capacity equals the human brain. Uh, so basically, the computing power of the human brain is is outstanding at this point, beating anything else, really. The capacity of a computer right now is the capacity of a brain of a cricket, if you're lucky. And of course, there's no emotional intelligence. It's just computing. Mm-hmm. So singularity is at 2025, roughly the point to where one computer could be as as powerful as my brain in terms of computing, right? This has no ramifications on intelligence, really on emotional, social intelligence, of course, right? Mm-hmm. We're still far ahead there, right? But uh, at the point where computers can simulate completely the human brain, we're reaching a switchover point to where things that were previously unthinkable like computers doing customer service, mm-hmm. understanding images, understanding context, which they don't, right, currently. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is basically the point of man-machine overlap. I think it's going to happen sooner uh, because technology has really put a lot of effort into this. I mean, uh, artificial intelligence is part of that discussion, right? And then basically transhumanism, which is the idea of uh, uh, people becoming machines and vice versa, uh, basically, in 2050, we'll have one computer have the capacity of the entire world's population and brain, uh, and that's because that's yeah, crazy. yeah, that's a that's a crazy equation. Uh, the only thing that holds us back from that is that uh, nanotechnology. You cannot. Uh, uh, Moore's law is kind of ending for chips, right? Because you can't go beyond the nano level in in technology, and then you have also you have a huge energy problem. For example, you can have large computers, but they would eat up a, a nuclear power plant worth of energy, right? Um, and so those are limiting factors uh, at this point. But eventually, that becomes a complete merging of man and machine in terms of mental capacity uh, and brain computer interfaces and those kind of things. Hmm. Thank you for thank you for digging into that. And if Moore's law, you're referring to the man who worked at IBM, correct? Yes. Well, the founder the founder of Intel, not IBM. Oh. Uh, but Moore's law is basically <laughs> it's still in full swing. It's just that eventually we can see it slow down because you cannot beat the laws of physics uh, when it's about scaling technology. So eventually, you get to the nano level on the chip, right? And beyond the nano level, you get into basic physical limitations, which somebody explained to me just the other day. And also, when when it gets to be really large, for example, if you want to crack the genetic code of 100 million people, you need very, very large computing uh, uh, arrays, right? Uh, Which we currently can do, but they will eat up so much energy that if we wanted to do 5 billion of those, you know, we currently couldn't even fuel it, you know? So there are limitations on that. Yeah. Amazing. So when we when we look to the horizon, you know, in, in 2020, for example, not too far away, right? 
when we think about what's happening and the and, and the development of you know I guess people that come in and, and disrupt quickly and organizations have to large organizations have to adapt. Yeah. What do you see people needing um, to do now in order to future proof their careers or in, in, in like five years? Yeah, I think that the, one of the key points is that uh, technology and computers and robots and software uh, will become so good in doing our work uh, because, you know, they, they're, getting, they're getting much larger, quicker, faster and more intelligent. You know, uh, right. cognitive, cognitive computing is the, is the key word here and deep learning and artificial intelligence, which means computers can actually understand things, you know. Right now, if you have a computer talk to a two-year-old, they wouldn't know what to think of that conversation because a two-year-old doesn't talk like, like Siri. Right. Uh, so it's very hard, you know, so that, that will be a huge shift in our workplace. Basically, anything that can be digitized or automated or put into the cloud will be. Right? Mm -hmm. uh, so putting into the cloud means 95% cost savings, yeah. uh, which, which eradicates, for example, things like DVD, right? Uh, we'll just put it into the cloud, but it also dramatically lowers the price point for those services. For example, now you can do a startup for a hundred bucks. You can move into Amazon cloud services mm -hmm. that used to be a hundred thousand dollars to get your own server. But having said that, what's happening here with people is that we are basically forced to realize that uh, computers and robots and software will eat our jobs in many ways. You know, the, the trivial jobs, the manual part, like filing stuff or computing something very simple or looking things up, right? I mean, you can already go to Syria or Katana or so, and you can say, please show me the next, uh, the best possible connection to Mexico City on a Friday. Mm -hmm. uh, but now digital assistants like Cortana will take over that job completely. So banks are investing currently into automated robotic advice for financial services, right? I mean, Charles Schwab has invested in this. So it's, it's a huge thing, basically, being able uh, to outsource that job to computer brains. Uh, so in two years, you can go to computer and you can say, well, I'm planning a world tour, a world speaking tour, come up with the best agenda, the best connections, and 14 seconds later, you have your itinerary booked, right? Um, that requires deep, deep intelligence. And so what that means for people is basically, we're going to move back to the right brain, uh, well, let's put it this way. We're going to become creative, thoughtful, intuitive, imaginative, uh, holistic again, because what we used to do, which is, which is working like robots, right? I mean, many people, <laughs> many people work like robots, including myself, you know, doing a lot of really mind boggling research and, you know, kind of robotic in many ways because we're just stuffing our brain full of, of information, right? Yeah. Um, we won't need to do that in the future because we can we can look to machines to do that for us. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in fact, I think the TED conference will have this year a TED presentation by uh, I call them the Oracle bot. You know, the comp the robot that can be a futurist. Wow. Um, wow. Uh, I doubt that's really useful, but it can be interesting. So, in any case, uh, we're moving back to doing things that only people can do, uh, and that will be our jobs for the future. That will be the jobs for our kids. Uh, basically, two big job areas. One is science, technology, engineering, math, because mm -hmm. that will completely explode. You know, every kid should learn how to code, obviously. Yeah. And then on the other side, I call it the hecky, humanity, ethics, creativity, and intuition, um, because that's our stronghold, and that will be this way for a long time. We 
we need scientists that also are creative, right? But many right. people who do, who do tech are not uh, required to be necessarily creative uh, uh, in overall terms. For example, fixing a computer network is not necessarily creative. It's, it, it can be, but most of the time it's just basically a job, right? But anyway, our kids are going to have those jobs that are more unique to humans. Um, and, of course, they'll sit on top of technology. So uh, basically, we're becoming super intelligent in many ways, superhuman, which is a weird thing to say, uh, based on technology that is available to us. However, the consequence is many of us will not be working our regular, you know, kind of uh, uh, automatable jobs. That's fascinating. And I, I'm, I'm recalling a conversation I had earlier this week with my daughter, who's 14 years old, first year in high school here in Canada. And she goes, they're pressuring me to figure out what I want to do for for a living and I'm 14 years old and I said honey you know the world is changing rapidly you've got to figure out what you love first and then and then figure out how to how to make that work in the world but this is this is this will be dinner time conversation well, I, th I think the key point here is for our kids is they have to figure out who they are what, yeah. their, what their strengths are uh, what do they really want to do what excites them about the future of the world how they make a contribution Right? And then later on, it's about making a living because, you know, in 10 to 15 years, many of us will not make a living by working in the same way that we do today. You know, we work for a living right now. A lot of people just work because it gets paid, right? The future will right. not have that yeah. right? because we are going to have abundant things based on technology, including abundant food, abundant energy, abundant health. I mean, the cost of healthcare will be so dramatically reduced by technology uh, that all of us can have it, even if you're completely broke. Uh, and that's maybe 15 years away or so, but the danger of all of that stuff is, of course, it, it treats people kind of like machines, and, and so there is a danger of what I call machine thinking, right? Um, and machines taken over too many processes, you know, that is kind of a bad side effect of all these things. But our kids need to understand that the only way you're going to work in the future and make a contribution is by being more human, not less. Yes, Yes, totally. And I think that's one of the interesting things I find about the way you work as a futurist. You're not just talking about the future and what's coming, but you also have the side that I don't see with some other futurists in terms of the warnings and the sort of the red flags. I see that you point those out sometimes and that, um, yeah, this is amazing and helpful technology, but we need to be careful about it. And I like well, that. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm positive, but critical. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and I think we all need to be that because uh, it doesn't take us very far to be enamored with technology. I mean, if you look at, see what happiness is, you know, if you're looking, I, I'm working on a new book and part of the discussion is about what is actually to be happy. And for example, if you buy a new iPhone, you know, you're happy for a week and then you get used to it. <laughs> uh, it's, it's not it's not a huge experience you know it's a great experience I, I always do that of course I buy all that stuff but you know in the end we're living in an experience economy and happiness is about lasting experiences so if you mm -hmm. go hiking with your kids in the mountains you spend the same money than an iPhone maybe well not here in Switzerland but otherwise um, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, then, then you have a lasting experience for your entire life yeah right. Right. So, so that is the key question now, ultimately uh, you know, happiness is kind of something that you don't get from physical things. So the key question there really is for us, when machines take over too many things, they may actually take over the pieces that make us happy, which would be a bad development. So we do have to be critical also to outsource to machines 
outsourcing, for example, in dating or even in sex, you know, sex robots are now exploding. Yeah. Uh, those are big issues that are essentially inhuman uh, in their in their approach, uh, reducing humanity to an algorithm, which I think is a very bad idea. Yeah, yeah, I would agree. So we we can we can um, uh, call you the the ph philosophical futurist now. Yeah, well, it's all about philosophy now because uh, it, yeah. used to, it used to be 10 years ago that we would say, we would sit down and say, well, if we could do this, you know, like a self-driving car, automated translation, uh, genetic engineering, the question would be, if we can do this, what would we do? And today the question is, yeah, we can certainly do almost all of those things. Right? Yeah. The yeah. key question is why yeah. and who? Yeah. Right? I mean, imagine the point where you have the Internet of Things, you know, my car connected, my house connected, my belongings connected, everything tracked, everything uh, supervisable. Then the question is, who do we trust? Mm -hmm. Why are they doing it? Mm -hmm. and, and what is the consequence? The question is not going to be whether it can be done because the answer is yes. Yes. And I agree with that. I think sometimes I get really taken by some of this technology. I think it's fascinating. I like the AI. I like that. Swift key, for example, has released a new AI keyboard that I can use on my phone and it will do most of the texting for me without yeah. even having to type anything. I like these kind of things for convenience, for efficiency, and etc. But I have the same kind of uh, thoughts that you do where I'm like, why is this good for me and how is this working and who controls it and where is my data and who is protecting it, etc., etc. And I, I think that the flashy sometimes makes us ignore these questions that I think are important. Well, it's, uh, we're giving things away for, for getting other things, right? Yes. And this is, <clears throat> this is why I stopped using Google email uh, or even Android OS because I feel like I'm giving away a lot of things to get this really convenient empire that Google is building. And I'm not saying this badly. I'm saying this is, it's fantastic what they're doing and their stuff really is the best you can get, right? But... We are, we're, we're making a trade, and I, sometimes I'd be better off to pay for that than to make a trade yeah. um, because then I, at least I have some control over it, and I don't necessarily outsource all these important things to me. Right? So the, I always say in my speeches, we should embrace technology, but I don't want to become technology. Mm. Uh, and, and that is kind of a deal sometimes that, that we embrace technology, and then we're giving away everything that is dear to us, for example, our relationship, our feelings, our emotions, our, you know, and, and, and machines get to know us so well that they can be like us, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's good. For example, if you are looking at Google now or so, that's fantastically convenient if the machine can be like me, right? Yes. So the machine can go out and book a flight for me. The machine can go out and negotiate with another machine about buying something, you know. That, that's very convenient, but it's also extremely scary because that machine could ultimately decide things that are not in my view, in my point of view that I want to maintain, or it can pretend to do things uh, that I wouldn't do, or somebody else gets to that information and would rank me, for example, the police or a potential employer or whoever, uh, and I have no protection there whatsoever. So that is kind of a, a double-sided thing, right? Yeah, it's very true. Hmm. So, um, so, oh, go ahead. No, it's okay. Go ahead, James. So with, with all this um, stuff that's going on and the changes and, like you're saying, being more creative, being more human, mm -hmm. five years out, for example, which is hard for people. Like, it's hard for me to even think what I'm going to do in December, let alone five years <laughs> out. But um, I'm currently not leading an organization, right? I'm not, like, a, a leader of a, a CEO of a bank or something like that. So 
what sort of things or what sort of thought processes or thinking should leaders go through right now to kind of get themselves and their organizations ready for all of this? Because I, I hear what you're saying. I read what you're, you're talking about. I watch your presentations. And it's also, it's also big and crazy in a way what's going on. And we only know maybe half of it sometimes because it's so quick. And I'm not even leading an organization. So I imagine that someone who's a CEO must <laughs> find it hard to sleep some nights. So what, Absolutely. Do, you, what, yeah. do, you, what do you say to these, uh, to these people? Well, I think in the next five to seven years, there's a bunch of low-hanging fruits that people need to look at. And they are looking at it in many ways. For example, it's quite clear that you can use automation and intelligent computing to dramatically reduce your cost and increase the margin. Uh, big data and analytics, social media. I mean, you can use all these tools that people are looking at right now to make your organization become much smarter, much more real-time, and much more friendly to, to your customers. And those are really low-hanging fruits. For example, really simple, what, uh, what uh, Ginny Rometti from IBM calls the cognitive business, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, a business that understands its data that can analyze the data, that can react to the data and be quicker with R&D and responses is vastly superior than any other business because it's kind of like having super intelligence, you know, using, for example, uh, social monitoring or sentiment analysis or... And that's actually really, really easy to do these days and, and mobilizing your business for the customer. That's a prime objective, for example, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and building better CRM and basically, you know, to go away from this idea that when people come to your website, they, all they have to do is click a buy button, right? It's not about the buying. It's about the engagement, the relationship, mm -hmm. uh, between you and the buyer, whether you're B2B or, B, or B2C, right? It's all about that engagement. So in the next few years, all these things will be done to make businesses more efficient to make them more personal, to make them more engaged, right? to make them more visible, to make them findable. These things are happening, and a lot of it has to do with efficiency. Right? So it's quite clear most companies, yeah. especially large ones in the future, will have a lot less employees for that very reason that they use smart technology to replace yeah. those simple processes. Yeah. Right? Uh, and so that leads to a margin increase, you know, if you do this co correctly. For example, a big telecom company will invest in a cloud-based system to run the network, uh, let's say, with 100 supervisors rather than with uh, 50,000 employees uh, to actually run and maintain the network, which is currently being looked at pretty much everywhere. And that, that's the next five years. And then after you reach efficiency and you become better at all this sort of digital stuff, then it basically becomes like air or like water. You know, everybody has it and everybody's expecting that to work. So every company becomes a digital company. Uh, software is eating the world, as Andreessen said, right? Uh, that's all going to happen. That's a huge opportunity. After that, then the question is basically, how do you maintain a value when things become much cheaper and much more tra uh, uh, transparent, right? How do you maintain it? How do you create new values? You know, yes. Ultimately, Uber will not be about cars or transportation. Uh, it will be about reinventing the whole ecosystem around it. Yes. And, and that's the larger story you have to pursue now so you can roll it out in five years. And that's, that's the creative part, too, where you're, where you're thinking mm. about the, the, the places where the income and the new opportunities can come from. Because I... I, I agree with you in that, and that there's going to be so much that, like even now, for example, the iPhone killed so many industries, like Kodak is, is dead, right? Because we yeah. don't print photos anymore. We have 2,000 photos in the cloud on our iPhone. And so, uh, you know, Black's photography here in Canada, they're shutting all their stores. So they didn't think, what, like as you're saying, is 
looking creatively for new income opportunities and new places to maybe, you know, take advantage of Instagram and have people print their Instagram photos or something? Well, like I think the key question for companies today, especially if you have been in business for a while, the key question you have to ask is very simple. Can somebody come and disrupt me digitally with what a core of my business is, right? Which part of my business can yeah. be disrupted by digital technology? Yeah. Uh, so if the hotels had asked that question, they would have come very easily to the, to the answer of saying, well, somebody can do a database of all the empty apartments, right? Uh, and, and they can connect people like eBay and they can compete with us, right? Yeah. So if you are a company that makes lifts or elevators, you have to ask the question, well, what part of what we do can be disrupted by a smart startup using technology. Yep. Uh, and then you look at all these things, and basically what's happening, for example, in banking, if they had asked this question five years ago, they could have come up with saying, you know what, the main disruptor here is mobile, and we're going to go to mobile before somebody else disrupts us. But now they are, they're going to lose 50% of their revenues to, to the uh, uh, financial the fintech startups, right? Because yeah. they have they have not looked in this direction, and and that makes a that creates a huge amount of pressure and frustration, of course, in those incumbents. So, so you know, Garrett, can the, can the same question be applied to individuals now? Like you say, you know, the key question for organizations: Can someone come and disrupt me? You know, I'm thinking about Hecky, as you you've described yeah. it, right? Um, humanity, ethics, creativity, intuitiveness, and and that focus down the road I, as an individual can i ask myself the same question yeah you can and you know but the uh, the famous futurist alvin toffler once said that uh, he's not a speed learner he's a speed understander mm -hmm. um, so oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. big the big difference is this one it's um, mm -hmm. if you're looking at your own function within a company or as an entrepreneur you have to ask a simple question is what i do replaceable by a, by a really smart machine Right or a piece of software, or uh, for example, the idea that as as a human being, I will be quicker and faster by analyzing data and coming up with solutions compared to a machine. That was true until just about now. That will no longer be true, right? Because I can. There's no way a doctor, for example, can compete with remote diagnosis or IBM Watson running a scan of a of a of of a. Um, a body scan and figuring out compared to a hundred million other results, you know, that's, that's just not going to happen. We, we cannot compete with that kind of output of machines, right? So it doesn't make sense for, for us to race with the machines and try to beat technology, right? What we need to do is to say, well, there are things that only an understander can do. For example, the doctor who stands at the, at the bedside of a patient, he can use IBM Watson. IBM Watson will say, you know, this person very likely 94.5%, he has exactly the same problem than the other person somewhere in India five years ago, right? The, the computer can say that and recommend a treatment, but the doctor can talk to the person and can understand mm -hmm. the person is really depressed, for example, right? Which a computer would not know from the numbers. Oh, maybe not. So, so, you know, those interpersonal skills, are going to be much more, even much more critical than they are now. Well, understanding is not about algorithms, right? Uh, you yeah. can say, I understand the economy of Google, right? You have read all the reports and, and that makes you very smart, but it doesn't make you understanding, right? Because you still have not digested it. We have not contemplated it, right? You have not, you have not created something unique. You've just amassed information. Uh, right. 
And so if you, if you take the example of the doctor, the doctor gets in two seconds the overall impression of, of that person, right? And if, if that can be combined with the power of the machine, then we have a truly powerful thing you know, man and machine. If the doctor had no machine, he would have to go back and research and read the books and, you know, that would be cumbersome as well, right? So the answer to that is, you know, we're going to have to figure out personally what values can only we do, and that has to do with understanding, with storytelling, with imagination, with intuition, with emotions, with, you know, all that stuff that computers will not hopefully uh, be able to do for quite a while. Well, and there's a comment here um, at uh, peg underscore picks says in, in the right-hand side there, but will AI eventually be hecky capable? What's your thoughts on that, Garrett? Uh, I'd, I wouldn't want it to be. I think anybody who's suggesting that would uh, shovel their own grave. Um, I mean, yeah. basically at this point, you can say that AI can, for example, read my face, and there's only 42 facial muscles, right? So AI, after having read 100 million faces, could figure out that I am distracted or disturbed or jet lagged or, you know, that would not be hard. And then after you read it, AI could actually simulate it and say, oh, yeah, I look jet lagged. And they could, they could simulate that, for example, in a robot or an avatar or, you know, whatever you would have, right? But there's a big difference between simulating something and being something, right? I mean, and an AI could never be angry. They could, they could simulate being angry because they've learned it from us, right? Right. But there's a vast difference. You know, a simulation is, you know, many scientists have talked about this. A simulation is at best between 5 and 10% copy of the reality. Uh, and that, I don't think that will really change in the near future. Once we start confusing the simulation with reality, then we're in deep shit, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and for example, most Hollywood pictures, uh, motion pictures, they're simulations of, and simplifications of complex things, right? Yeah. And they are about entertainment. They're not about, uh, uh, you know, predicating the future, right? And so yeah. uh, that we have to realize the difference. You know, when our digital assistant recommends which restaurant we should eat in, that is interesting and it's helping us, but it's not reality, right? It's a, it's a simulation of reality. Yeah. Uh, and anybody who's ever tried only eating where TripAdvisor recommends, <laughs> uh, you would know you get to the worst places in the world if you do that, right? Uh, right. But, there is, but there is still real value to TripAdvisor as long as you know that it's boiled yes. down from some, uh, somebody else's reality. Yes, yes, exactly. I think one of the things that's important to point out too is, is stepping back a bit because, as you mentioned, you have to ask the question, uh, what can come and disrupt me or my company, but some people are so uh, disconnected to what's happening in digital right now that they can't even imagine that, that they can't even consider um, some of the technology that already exists because they just don't even know about it. So I think mm -hmm. one of the things that might be good for people too is just stepping back before that question and just start educating yourself, start reading the right blogs, start seeing the right things that give you an idea of what's already out there and what's coming because I've talked to people who don't even know, for example, how to use Siri and what it really means. So um, I think part of the thing is just keeping yourself in, in line with what's going on or in tune yeah. by you know, to reading certain books and blogs and listening to presentations and things like that.
I think, you know, basically the only way you can safeguard your future is by spending maybe 5 to 10% of your time at looking at the future uh, and actually being inside of the future. I mean, I can't tell you how many people I talk to that want to use social media for marketing and branding purposes, but on the company network, the social media is blocked out, right? Right. Uh, and they've never actually used it. That's like saying, I want to I want to cross the ocean and swim to the Farallel Islands from San Francisco, but I've never been in the bathtub. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know it's like, I, I don't even know what water is, but I want to cross the bay. But uh, I want to cross the bay, exactly. It's, it's, I mean, it's kind of, of course that won't work. I mean, the best way you can safeguard your job is by understanding the future and living inside of it to a certain degree, uh, because you don't understand things unless you know about them. I mean, Let's not put the well, exactly. part of, you know, if you, if you actually know the future and you're looking at stuff, then eventually a picture emerges, which is the understanding, right? You will not have understanding by not looking at anything, yes. uh, but looking at everything does not make an understander. Good point. That, yes, that's true. a great quote. I'll have to put that yeah, up somewhere true. and think about that a little bit. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, the, the problem is that uh, in, in the human mind, we, we are limited to our intake. Uh, and there's really, there's lots of stats showing we cannot really multitask very well. We get confused. We have mental capacity for four or five hours of serious work, and then we decline. And, right. those, and those are limitations. Our real strength is not in in taking the world's input like a vacuum cleaner, right? Our real strength is in merging the, all those disparate things and come to an understanding that is uniquely ours. And that is what powers an entrepreneur, right? Because the entrepreneur understands there's a gap in the market that I've seen. And when you do that, that's when you launch yes. great new products, even though nobody has said that they want it. Uh, so uh, there's a great saying about Henry Ford, yeah. right? If Henry Ford had asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. Right, right exactly. Uh, and so this is what we need to yeah. do. We, yeah. you know, I, I do yeah. this every year. I look at this and saying, you know, what, what am I actually doing that helps people uh, <clears throat> to discover the next thing after the horse. If I don't do that, then I'm just another fast horse, and eventually I become, you know, we don't need, we don't need horses anymore. Right? Uh, I mean, we have them, but they're not very useful for for many things anymore. Uh, so then we become the next horse, right? So innovation and creativity, then, on both a company level and an individual level, become processes and skills that we we have to hone. Is that correct? Is that my understanding that correctly? Well, transformation and change is good. I mean, this is really the beginning. It's, uh, however, I would take it up a step and say it's about transformation, right? You know that toy that you can wind up and it goes from a robot to being a car? Um, whatever that is, is uh, you know, it's a conversion thing, right? Transformers. Um, yeah, transformer toy, right? That's it. Um, we have to be like that because basically it's not enough for us to make things just a little bit better. Uh, I mean, if you look at the movie industry, it, 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 the movies are still the same or less, but our entire method of distribution is moving to over the top. Right? Mm -hmm. So no longer do we buy physical products, we stream it somewhere. And the movie industry has completely reinvented what it does as a yeah. consequence. Uh, and, and so that is becoming from, you know, yeah. going from a robot into a car and then from a car into an airplane or whatever, right? So it's about transformation. And to understand transformation, we have to understand the context. Right. Uh, we have to always be on the lookout for interesting ideas and learn from other industries. For example, in many cases, the rules are now reversed. For example, Tesla published all the patents that they had for battery technology 
they gave it all the public domain. It's about $2 billion worth of research because, because the rising tide lifts all boats, right? Yeah. If somebody mm -hmm. can come up with, with something else for batteries, yeah. Tesla will benefit. If they had kept it, they wouldn't benefit from releasing it, yeah. right? And the, the pharma companies are the other way around. The, the medicine and medical companies, they keep all the patents and they squash anyone wanting to go near it, right? Because they monetize the patents. They don't want that to lift mm -hmm. the other boats. Right. So you have to actually look at sometimes it's better yes. to do it the other yes. way around, right? To actually reverse the rules of the market like Tesla has done and, and Amazon has done and Airbnb has done, right? Mm. Very true. So <clears throat> if if you were to give well, I have so many things going on in my head. Can do you do you reverse assumptions? I'm, I'm going back and back, Garrett, to, to everything we've talked about so far, and I'm thinking about the, the brain, our own ability to, to process cognitively, our ability to handle complexity, our ability to mm -hmm. switch thinking, like, um, you know, going into a more abstraction, perhaps, um, as, as, a, as a way to develop more, more skills and sort of work our brain, like if we never look creatively at something we always like the you know the linear the concrete then this is a this is going to be a challenge for us moving forward we have to go and use as you said the other side of the brain in many ways well yes i mean the left right brain model is an old model as we know but it does describe the capability that we're you know we were very much dominated by the left brain you know, anybody who went to business school would understand that you know running models and then performing on them right and, and then if you're not good enough of a performer, you read a smart book and you perform better, right? Mm -hmm. That's not going to work here right? okay. because, because these are road things, right? These are basically just plans and they are algorithms, uh, algorithms of performance, right? And they can be creative, but by and large, they are executional, right? Uh, and that won't work here because okay. that can be put into a system that does that, right? I mean, uh, so when you go to the right brain, uh, then you're also talking about embodiment. For example, I uh, forgot who wrote this, but basically cognitive thinking requires a body, right? I mean, a, a human, human ingenuity, a human intuition, and human creativity is not here, right? Mm -hmm. uh, it's not a, a mechanical process. It requires embodiment. It requires context. Right? And so that's what makes us unique. And so we have to accept our limitations of saying we can't take in the world information. We can't work 18-hour days. We can't really multitask. Right? Uh, but we can do other things that nobody, nothing else can do at this point, right? which is to really read between the lines, to understand emotions, to, uh, to preview, to actually predict things based on our view of how it all goes together, right? That, that is creativity. And the computer can write a piece of music now, right? If we give him a hundred million pieces of music, or it rather, a hundred mm -hmm. million pieces, they can, they can write something like it, right? But mm -hmm. as I said before, that is a simulation and it's interesting, but it's mm -hmm. not real. Right. And, and so there is a difference, you know, I, I'm going to work yeah, in the real yeah, world, yeah, you know, I don't want to work in a simulated world. There are people who are saying that would be just fine to be in a simulated world. <laughs> uh, you know, I, th this is why I don't like the idea of transhumanism, because I don't want to live in a simulation, because it's actually a complete reduction of our reality. Yeah. Of our experience. And so um, if, if you are, if you're using a reductionary approach to life, uh, then you become a machine.
uh, and and there are people again who would, who would think that's perfectly fine. I think that's inhuman, um, and so we have to discover what that means for us in the future. How do you help people? Um, one of the things that I keep thinking when I when I talk about this is 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 fear. Um, I think there's a lot of fear that people have. It's not so much that they don't want to learn, that they don't want to transform, that they don't want to see what's coming, but they're afraid. It's like that fear of the unknown, right? You you don't know what's coming. You don't understand it. You've never learned coding. Like for my for example, I I never had coding in high school. That wasn't even a thing really back then. So. So some people, I think, there's the, there's this wall of fear that is in front of them before they're able to even think um, about doing action, before even taking the action. So in your experience, when you're going around the world, like you said, you've been flying around to a lot of places in the last month, do you encounter this fear a lot? And if you do, how do you help people sort of take a step over that wall and not okay, be so well, afraid? Okay, well, this is a complicated question. I think... First of all, you have to ask the question of how do people change and how do organizations change? And the answer to that is really there's pain and there's love, right? Uh, people don't change without pain. You're never going to get divorced if it's not painful, right? You, you won't be looking to go to a therapist if it's not painful. Uh, you don't go to the dentist. And have, well, some people do, but most of the time it's about pain, right? right? It's, uh, you have to have some pain as a motivating factor, but pain is a very, very bad motivator in the long run. Uh, because you get depressed and you start drinking or whatever you do, but pain is a long-term motivator. You also need to fall in love with a new idea. So while you embrace the pain, for example, if you're noticing, if you're a record label and you're seeing, well, basically the price of music has dropped from $1 to $0.0001, right? That is painful. Uh, and then you embrace that pain and say, well, what else can I do? Yes. What can I fall in love with? And you can say, well, I could fall in love with being a marketing and, and delivery service provider for artists and create uh, those kind of environments. You know, that's the new business model. Um, you fall in love with that, and then you have a good combination for motivation. The other thing is about fear is that I think if you, um, if you don't watch much, much television uh, or movies or read the newspaper, that's a very good start. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> to release the fear. I mean, this is, for example, again, if you're going back to technology, uh, Hollywood is the primary driver of fear about technology. Uh, because, because you know, this is, of course, an yes. obvious thing. You know, it's just like in the 60s, it was all about sexual revolution. Now it's about, all about the you know, people being killed by robots. Yeah? So uh, not watching that would be a good start if you don't want to get more of that fear uh, because they, they use that to sell their movies, yeah. right? Uh, yeah, I think that's, that's perfectly fine. I, I, I have nothing true. against it. It's just kind of like if you watch that stuff and you think that's actually reality, then, that, then, then of course you'll be fearful, right? We should not fear technology. We need, we need to um, engage yeah. with it to figure out how far we want to take it, and then we have to supervise and control it, right? Mm -hmm. um, Monitor. Yeah. So, so fear. You know, I think the fear is a natural response to people. But sometimes I use exercise with my clients where I say, okay. I know you're worried about what mobile will, will do to your world. So let's do an exercise for the next four weeks. All of us here in this room, all of the executives in this company, we're just going to use the mobile for everything that we do otherwise on the computer for the next four weeks. You're not allowed to use the computer. And then you'll find out how powerful the mobile already is. Right? Yeah. Uh, and, and then you start to discover because, yeah. you know, basically the one of my principles I use with people to say is like, if we assume less, we can discover more. 
And that's true also between people, but it's very true in business because sometimes you have all these assumptions about how things work that there's no way to maneuver. So yes. if you question your assumptions, like, you know, if the yes, publishers true. had questioned their assumptions, uh, then they would have come up, come up with a better plan, better plan than, the, than the paywall, right? Because um, the assumption was, <laughs> right? And it's this, this stupid idea of saying that, well, my assumption is my content is worth something, and therefore I'm going to force you to pay, right? Yeah. That works in three out of a thousand cases, right? But if your assumption is I have a meaningful business and people will pay me if they find that meaning, then you can come up with really powerful business models like The Economist has or The Atlantic or Quartz or, you know, or so many others, including, of course, all the other likes like Mashable and Fast Company and Wired and, and so on, right, rather than resorting to like a, a forceful scenario. So if you question your assumptions, you try things out, you go beyond your comfort zone, you talk to people who have done that, I, I think eventually it kind of breaks open, right? Yeah. And you cannot, you cannot disregard the value of pain there because when you realize that, that there's stuff happening that's going to demolish your model, that's when you start taking action. Uh, so that's also a good way to simulate pain, which we do a lot in our workshops, right? To, to where we say, imagine if, right? And how much pain would you have? And then yes. you say, oh, God, yes. that would really hurt me. And therefore, I need to think about because it's very likely to happen. I mean, if, if the car companies five years ago would have thought about the fact that auton autonomous driving and electric cars are a certainty, which was clear five years ago, right? Then they would they would have said, "Oh God, if that happens, you know, yeah. we're, we're going to have to do something, and it wouldn't be Dieselgate, right?" Right. Yeah, Dieselgate. <laughs> so true. So I, I'm just curious, how many of these people who do the four-week mobile experiment? Well, and, and mobile it depends after. very much on the company. But for example, I've done that with banks a few <clears> times. I've done that with governments, right? And uh, about 50% of them collapse and go to the computer. Uh, and, and they get quickly uh, uh, <laughs> thrown out because basically the people who do the mobile thing and really understand that they are the, they're going to be the future leaders, right? Uh, because they have realized that it's possible oh. if we only had a mobile interface, we could clean up this client base, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I did a seminar for a bunch of hotels the other day here in Switzerland, yeah. and I checked out their websites. And 5% of the websites of these big, huge luxury hotels in Switzerland, 5% was mobile optimized, right? I'm saying you're trying to sell to people in Brazil, what? Russia, India, the U.S., you know, who spent this kind of money, and you still haven't gotten around to doing it. I mean, that's if you go to your own website with the iPhone, you'd be disgusted, right? You certainly right. wouldn't work there. And I tell you, within three months, everybody is gearing up on the mobile phone. It's not hard to do, right? It's just yeah. that you have assumed that it didn't matter. Yeah. Right? So you have well, the wrong, I, wrong assumptions. Yeah. Wrong assumptions. And that's where I think we can learn from our millennials coming up in, in the workforce and how they live and operate, right? And, well, and assume, try assume, on for yeah. five. assume less, discover more. <laughs> uh, you know, that's kind of a good principle because especially if you've been in business for a while, uh, then you've piled up like hundreds of assumptions about what it is, right? Uh, and then if you take a step back, all of a sudden the software company oh, yeah. comes up, like, you know, take this company called Xero, X-E-R-O, from, from New Zealand. They come up with a bookkeeping software that will replace, if they are successful, 80% of the world's bookkeepers. 
right? Because wow. because it's an intelligent bookkeeping cool. software. It connects with the bank. It can read the text, right? And it'll cost you two hundred bucks a year to use. So if the bookkeeping community has would have looked at their assumptions and said, well, this is too complicated to replicate, right? Yeah, yeah. Of, it is complicated, but it's not NATO defense system, right? <laughs> right? You can you can actually it will be replicated, <laughs> and then what is your assumption is dead at that point, right? Yeah. Like it's like the record labels assumed that they can yeah. defeat progress in the digital arena by suing people. And of course, it turned out it's ridiculous. The only people that made money were the lawyers. That's right. Nothing against lawyers, but you know they made yes. all the money, not the artists, and and certainly not the consumers. And now they're back to square one, yeah. trying to find what their future is. And their future, in terms of distribution, belongs to Apple, Google, yeah. and Baidu. Yeah. So. We we have an we have an open yeah. seat here, and I know someone came in, and I couldn't get to them uh, as soon as I I could. So if anyone wants to join in, come on and flip your webcam on and and ask Eric a question. We're we're certainly open to that. Okay. Um, and you know while you know I'm thinking about as you're saying, you know, assume less, discover more. So you know, in organizations right now, we have learning and development, you know, teams. Mm -hmm. What role do they have in equipping, <clears throat> equipping the organization and the people that are working in the organization for success? When we think about how we have to discover more, as a yeah, I mean, I think in most organizations we're looking at as at a, a significant junction in the future. One is that anything with science, technology, engineering has taken a major role because technology is now a big part of what every company does, right? Yeah. Because of mobile, social, the cloud, the internet of things, you know, that's clearly taken a major leap there. Uh, and the other one is humanity, which is HR, marketing, uh, and, and human people officer, right? Um, is this kind of thing that's happening, basically the value of a company will be measured primarily on those two things. Um, and I think in the future, primarily on humanity, uh, because that's the only thing that can't be copied. Mm -hmm. Right, uh, and uh, I think uh, Kevin Kelly said a long time ago, when uh, when something gets free and can be readily copied, you have to offer something that can't be copied. Right. Uh, and right. what what cannot be copied, for example, is trust, yeah. relationships, uh, meaning, relevance. You know, yeah. and this is, for example, the New York Times is doing a great job on their on their proposal of being the medium of the future. Because even though they use a paid payroll, which they're slowly dismantling, I think, uh, or, or changing at least, right? They're building a relationship of trust and meaning and importance. And, and of course, they've always been important, so that this is easier for them. Yeah, right? they're, they're, but, they're, but they're actually embracing it. Which they're, they're embracing that model, even though they have trouble embracing the fluidity of the digital model. Yeah. But uh, they're embracing that paradigm. So in companies, people like HR, so they're going to take leading roles because we're going to need people to be really creative, intuitive, and forward-thinking. Uh, in many ways, you could say um, precognitive. We need people who can be precognitive. They can be go. They can go beyond what the customer tells them because the customer will tell them, "I want it to be cheaper and faster," and so on. And that's obvious, right? But yeah. you know, in a way, you could say, for example, uh, Jeff Bezos was precognitive by inventing the Kindle. Right. Nobody asked for that, and, and he spent billions of dollars building it. Uh, we need those kind of people who can be precognitive yeah. in the sense of uh, understanding what will happen rather than what is happening tomorrow. Thank you. And we've got Walter here. Yes. Hello, Walter. Welcome. Good morning, afternoon, and evening, depending on where you, where you are. <laughs> New York. 
Where are you calling from, Walter? Well, do you have a question for Gerd? I, I did put it in, in, in the chat, but no one responded or saw it, I think, about how about imagining different futures instead of just one. Uh, I actually I work in the three different computers, and I go in different directions So with my art. I'm working on art. So, so I don't see necessarily that we have to have any one future. In fact, I think we're living in many different presents for different people. Some people don't even use the computer still. You and I, we're on the computer, and you're talking about things about robots and, 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 and that, that direction. But some people, um, I mean, maybe there's people that don't even have the phone. And, I, and, and those people can actually make quantum leaps because they're not stuck in, in, in using anything along the way. That's true. I think that uh, we are already living in different presences, right? Yeah. So we may as well have different futures. But yeah. I think in general, the... The, the trend is really that because technology is go, encroaching on every part of our lives, there will be parts that people want to take out of that, right? I always like to say offline is a new luxury, right? Uh, <laughs> and this goes for nature. It goes for cooking. It goes for therapy. It goes for burning man. It goes for, you know, where technology is not a strong thing. Uh, and that will happen in parallel to the fact that yeah. technology has taken over everything else, right? Yeah. So, for example, if you're in business, uh, no matter what you do, whether you make art or whether you whether you sell hamburgers, chances are you will eventually use technology to, to be better in business, right? And if you don't, I mean, this is the reason that people are on LinkedIn and Zing and Twitter, right? Because they want to connect and improve their business, right? Yeah. And they want to learn. I think it's very hard to distinguish the two. To me, I lead a life of those kind of polarities, you know. When I go hiking in the Swiss mountains, I am offline. I use a dumb phone. Uh, and, and there's a purpose for that, right? That I don't want to be disrupted by technology. But but when I use technology and I go to a trade yes, show, I do yes. want to be findable. <clears throat> and I do want people to see my stuff. And uh, so it's actually a little bit of, you know, we have to have a balance. It's not an either or. I think you can move to Amish country and not use any technology. And you can probably be quite happy there. Uh, I, I probably wouldn't, but... <laughs> Uh, but maybe it's more, more of, a, of a question of zipping in and out of different realities. Okay, that's good. Uh, like myself, uh, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, maybe people don't like me to talk about it, but uh, I, I promote my business through giving out my business cards in the streets of Manhattan. And we have 20 million people who live in New York City, but we have 47 million visitors throughout the world. And I find more than using some kind of social media thing that this is the most productive way for me to get out into the world and spread whatever it is I have because every single person that steps into from from the rest of the United States or from every part of the world who steps into Manhattan, I look at it as they came to my card if I if I actually decide to show up and give it to them and they bring it back. And I remember being on Facebook a couple of years ago uh, when I first got there and, and some lady got all excited. She was from Japan and she had gotten my card, which didn't even have a uh, website at the time, and she sh and you put put a picture there of uh, uh, her scrapbook or whatever it was that had my business card in it with my picture on it. Well, I think that speaks to uh, honestly, Walter, what what Gerd was talking about in terms of trust, relationship, that connectivity of that personal, interpersonal meaning, right? That that I. I don't think is going away from this, you know, this is, I think that's even becoming after this discussion, my insight is, wow, it's even 
more relevant and more important. Well, let's, let's put it this way. I think if I can jump in there, I think it's very important to notice that you cannot generate trust in a digital environment uh, if you don't already start with trust or relationship, right? For example, I, I will not trust a machine in any such a way that I would trust a person, but you can certainly use uh, the digital environment to destroy the trust or to increase it, right? So if I trust the brand, I trust it for certain reasons, uh, and those reasons will be mostly personal and interpersonal, right? But when I then address them in the digital environment, they can they can do a lot to destroy that trust or to keep it, right? So, so technology can be used as an amplifier, yes, yes. right? But it, it cannot create trust because trust is not yes. something that that is uh, happening because a bunch of mouse clicks, you know. I mean, I I trust you to a certain degree when we're connected on LinkedIn, but that is a very small degree, right? Uh, if we spend two minutes together my trust right. factor is either completely demolished or completely increased, right? Because, right, because right. we're transmitting things, right? Well, uh, yeah. excuse me. I think trust I, 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 I think trust in that case is very tricky because it, it depends on both sides being as co conscious as each other because I may be talking about something and you're talking about something, and, and maybe I'm, I don't trust you because I don't really understand and I'm not being that conscious of what you're saying that I can trust or distrust it. And, and so you can talk to people sometimes and tell them something, but whether they really believe you, it's not necessarily only a matter of what you have between them, but what, whether they're willing to even focus in that direction because they're on the phone over here. Right? Yeah, I mean, I think that you know, trust is really the only human currency that we can use, that we can also keep. Because if you look at, for example, uh, Google Maps, or do you trust Google Maps to, to really take you to your destination? A lot of people are trusting Google Maps, but there's always a thought in the back of your mind that says, like, what if they haven't actually, you know, plotted the street? Well, you're or, talking uh, about you, you're talking about last night. I was in Greenwich Village, right? And I knew where I wanted to go. I knew the street, but I, I, I got a little bit lost. I was with a friend, and, and I, we asked these other people, and, and one guy pointed me exactly where he thought it was, down <laughs> 12th Street, and then I, I felt that it was there, and I went there. So, Well, I, I think this really depends. It's, it's very hard to make a case for everyone. Yeah, uh, right. It's also really a question of age. I mean, in my age, you, you tend to be more distrustful to technology, uh, that's just because we didn't grow up with it. But if you're 15 living in Hong Kong, you know, uh, uh, and, and you have the means for these kind of technologies, then you would probably be too trusting maybe. Um, so this is something we're going to have to learn, the balance, right? To a certain point, uh, I think technology will will be very, very good at building more trust, but it will not be the kind of human trust that we have. Uh, it, it will be sort of in a different universe of trust, right? You can trust TripAdvisor by saying, okay, I trust TripAdvisor when we're not completely wrong, right? But if you tell me, and we've been friends for 10 years, this is the best place to go to for spaghetti carbonara, right? I, I will <laughs> certainly trust you a lot more than anything I read on TripAdvisor. Right? Oh, that's wonderful. Well, yeah. You know, Gerd, thank yeah. you so much. Jamie, thank you. I've... I've um, absorbed a lot. I have to still 
uh, understand it and, and really get it at a cellular level, but it, it's resonating with me. And I thank you very much for going off. It's still foggy for me, but I'm seeing more lights going off. So I'm grateful to you both. Thank you. And to right. everyone who's joined. Sounds good. <laughs> uh, Gerd, this has been fantastic. I was really happy that uh, you agreed to do this. I heard you first on uh, Mitch Joel's Six Pixels of Separation podcast. Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. And uh, I was driving from one workshop that I was delivering, and I liked it so much I played it again in the car, and then right away when I got home I connected to you because I was just blown away by all the insight and the knowledge that you were sharing. So I'm so happy you joined us today. Thank you thank you so much for this. Thanks, and let's put this online and, and – Distribute it around a little bit. We will. What, I, okay. Good. what we do, uh, just to let you know, is uh, I'll send you a link after. It's called Padlet, and, and there we kind of do like a show notes thing. So I'll right. open it up that if you want to add any of your uh, stuff there or presentations or anything, you can. And what I do is I, I include that along with this video on my, on my, on my site so that when people come and, and watch this, they can also see – and, and, and reference some of the things that you mentioned in case they might have missed them, for example, or go to your Facebook page or whatever else you'd like to link to to connect with you as well. So, Okay, sounds good. Yeah. And this is a pretty cool platform here, the Blab thing. It's really... Yeah, it's great. Very, yeah. It's simple and easy and uh, no fuss, basically. So, And they are being very good at adding new features uh, every week. So it's uh, quite impressive. Way to go. So you got well, your... Th- You've got your first blab under your belt. (laughs) See you down the road, huh? Yeah, for sure. Have a great day. All right, bye. Bye. Well, that was great, Kim. I thought that was fascinating. Thank you, Jamie. He had so many interesting um, quotable uh, statements as well. Like uh, the last one there, offline is the new luxury. That's something I want to put on a t-shirt. That's so genius. Jamie, we get t-shirt motos every time, like logos on every time we talk to someone. That's amazing. That'll be the thing we'll add to the digital transformation page is the t-shirts from all the blacks. (laughs) I think that's really interesting. Um, it was fascinating the the bits about basically um like it's it's so interesting for me like you've got to kind of think ahead but you don't really know it's coming ahead and so this very simple piece of advice he gave where it, it is um open the newspaper and 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 read you know the news uh every day and just see what is going on and i think that is such a good place to start and one of the things that i've noticed about you know, when they kind of ask all the successful people in the world, uh, what made you successful or what is your routine that you do as a successful uh, billionaire, for example, almost everybody says they start with reading in the morning with newspapers, magazines, certain blogs, etc. And they mm-hmm. just keep educating themselves because I think that is the, the starting point and it's the simple starting point too. Yeah. And, and I would also argue you know, he mentioned getting comfortable with technology, right? So, you know, I personally understand this one deeply, right? I'm not the most comfortable. I'm getting more comfortable, but I made a conscious choice. I made a choice to try. And I think that then once I try, I learn, right? So that, um, you know, being aware that this is the world you live in and not, if you want to experience, for a different reality like you know walter says you might want to just stay in your reality right um which doesn't include that but if you want to um find out you know a differentiator for your career 
start using some of the technology that's out there, start understanding it and, 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 uh, you know, becoming less fearful to it. And, 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 and I like that point he said about being less, you know, the fear versus the in love paradigm, you know, yeah. and how you can, you know, find something that you were once fearful and how do you, how do you then take a look at it and what can you now fall in love with as a yeah. result? And, and integrating like the, and it, like you said, like pain is not a great motivator, but it, you have, excuse me, recognize that it's a part of it. It's so funny. I find that you'll see over and over again, there'll be this no pain, no gain thing at the gym, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And people know that like they're not going to grow muscle or get fit if they don't have a bit of pain. Like you, you're, you're sore some days after a, a marathon, right? That's it. And, and everybody knows this and everybody talks about it and it's like this motto. But then when it comes to business life, we want everything easy and painless. And it makes no sense that we don't transfer that idea or that thinking over into our growth as a professional too, that it is not always going to be easy and painless. And you, I think it is one of the things that maybe we, we do someday is just, is just interview you and basically say, yeah. okay, Kim, in 2015, at the beginning of 2015, you didn't know how to use Skype with me. You didn't know how to use Twitter. You were no. you were struggling with LinkedIn, and now yeah. you're tweeting. You're posting on LinkedIn. You're doing blabs. You're like you're calling me on Skype, no problem. And and in the beginning, I remember you were getting a bit frustrated sometimes. Of course. And, and it was kind of hurt. It kind of hurt to kind of to sit in front of your computer and not know what the hell to do with it. it can be a kind of painful experience for some people. And that can prevent them from going further. But you stuck with it and you're just like, I'm going to keep doing this. And I think. And I had a good coach. (laughs) (laughs) But the thing is that you've learned so much and you you keep piling on top of that learning, more learning. And I think it's a really good um, example of anybody who's watching or listening to this can think of is, is how we decided to do this because of one thing that we both agreed on that we just need to make the first step and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. We just need to learn. Yeah, exactly. Um, What do you think about this? um, You know, as he's talking and going uh, on on about Hecky, which, you know, there's science engineering math on one side in terms of the careers, right? And then there's humanity, ethics, creativity, intuitiveness set on top of technology, this Hecky. So what do you feel, Jamie, the role of self-actualization is now for the career of the future? Well, I think so. That's a really good question, because when he's talking about that piece of it, so we can like easily people know that like gaining some more skills, learning how to use Microsoft Word, for example, like simple things. Or how does my phone work? Most people are starting to understand that they kind of need to figure that kind of thing out and maybe not necessarily for work, but just because they want to buy a phone because everybody else has one. Right. But in the self-actualization side of things, like I think that a lot of people have gone a long time in their life without digging into their creative side, without digging into the way that they really think and how their emotions um, rule their life and how their intuition might be something that they might want to follow or listen to. Well, and so, yeah, and, so, and it hasn't even been validated. Like the, the society, at least here in North America, hasn't validated no, that inspiration. No. And that's the interesting thing that when he was talking about that, I thought, wow, that's such an interesting thing because I call myself the digital fluency coach where I'm coaching people and becoming more digitally fluent. 
But there's that piece of understanding your creativity, understanding your emotions, understanding your intuition and, and pulling those things into the picture that I hadn't really considered before, but um, which, which is so funny that I haven't because that's what helped me get to where I am is using right. my creativity and my intuition, etc. So um, it, it's, it's, it's funny that we and trusting I, that and yeah, trusting that yeah, and trusting it and, and paying attention to it. Like, like, I can't think of how I would have ever done what I've done in the last year without tapping into my creativity. Right. Right. And so with my creativity, of course, I discovered certain tools. I discovered certain apps. I bought a different phone because of this and that. Sure. Like I, I dug into these things, but coupled with my creativity, I think that's where it's taken me farther than maybe some of my colleagues, because I did listen to my intuition three or four years ago that said to me, get into social media and digital because that will keep you a step ahead. I did listen to that. And then I coupled my creativity with how uh, can I use these tools to be a little bit different or be a bit more unique. And so all of that came together for me to do um, and be able to succeed in what I've been doing. So it's very true what he says. And it's interesting that when we talk about digital transformation, we have that word digital all the time. Um, and the future and technology and artificial intelligence and robotics, we think of the machine, we think of the software, we think of the coders, we think of the engineers, but um, there is that piece that will always continue and, and always be important, which is the human side of things, the human brain, the emotions, the trust, the connection of the shaking a hand as opposed to just talking over Skype, yeah. for example. These things do make a difference. Yeah. You know, as you're speaking and, and I'm thinking about the dialogue we just had, it's almost like digital transformation um, equals human discovery. Yeah. Like discovering what it really means to be human yeah. now, um, which is very interesting. So, so when we think of careers and we think of skills, there's the obvious ones on on the left-hand side of the brain, right? The, the math, the, the science, the technology, I think that's still relevant, right? But what it means to be uniquely human becomes um, a career, you know, that understanding, that self-awareness um, starting with, with who you are. I loved what he said, and I've got to find it. I have so many notes here, but it's, you know, um, you know who, who are you? What are your strengths? What do you want? What excites you? And how do they make a contribution? Yeah. You know, those questions are pretty powerful, right? And things that we go in as coaches and understand, you know, help others with. But really, that becomes even more important now for leaders, for, for people to really understand who they are, what they want, and how they, how they want to show up. Yeah. Um, and then go on into, okay, how do I train myself to be more open to creative ideas? How do I allow myself to, to be okay with trusting my gut, like the intuition yeah. that, you know, I've dismissed for the last 10, 15 years or what have you. So, you know, the <clears throat> learning and development field, I, I go in and say, well, maybe you know, mindfulness, mindfulness meditation, which is starting to come through, right, in terms of leadership, self-awareness, self-actualization. Um, you know, there's happiness training. He mentioned happiness, right, getting into his new book. And the role of how you are happy, when you're happy, you're more creative, you know, you're more open. Yeah. So I think there's something there I'm going to keep an eye on. 
Yeah, that's, those, those are really great points and something that, like I say, maybe we have another discussion about this and we just uh, record it because it's very important and very necessary. And the, you're mentioning like the being human and the human side too reminded me, it, it popped up in my mind when he said, as a leader, you have to know that your company of, let's say, um, 500 employees, I'll start small, uh, uh, is going to maybe only be 200 in five years. And so yeah. you need to get in touch with the fact that the human side of that reality means you're going to be getting rid of 300 employees who can rely on you now for their salary, et cetera. Yes. And yeah. so you, it's impossible to deal with that situation without the human side of this equation. Mm-hmm. And that interpersonal side. So um, what did you think about, Offline is is the new, um, what did he call it? Offline is, Offline is the new luxury. And I, I agree. Like I was telling people in a workshop this week that I schedule into my uh, weekly routine unplug nights um, where I try, I try, <laughs> because we have so many damn devices in this house, it's very difficult. Um, I try to have them off or not in front of me and do something like uh, hang out with friends uh, play a board game or chess, uh, read a book, um, do something that doesn't include a device and, and, and Wi-Fi or an app. And yeah. I, I think that it's necessary because it's that, again, the human side of things. Because yeah. we can't – I think our experience is different when it's on a screen than it, when it's, like, there, tangible, in your hands, in front of you, someone across the table, etc. And I – one of the reasons I do it is because I believe that, like he said, if I'm not reading regularly and like a book, not just a blog article, but actually something that you dig into and explore as a subject a little more in depth, then I won't ever be relevant um, in my job, in my field, and for other people. And so yeah. I'm trying to build into my schedule these, this time for reading and to read. Um, I've asked him, for example, in the past what books he might recommend on these topics and just just staying up to up to, to date with what's going on, feeding my brain, being open to these ideas. And, and one of the things I think is a good idea, too, is that if you might not agree with certain things that some people might say in the space that you work in, follow them anyway on Twitter. Because I think it's important for us not to always look for that confirmation bias, yeah. but to sometimes see and open your mind to see, well, maybe that person does have a good point with this thing. Like, and, yeah, don't be so self-referential, right? <clears throat> and especially these days because, my God, like, um, I just saw another app this morning on Twitter that I never thought would exist. It's just like every day there's something else. So if you're not open, um, I feel sorry for you, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. it, it, well, so so maybe there is a, you know, a weaving, let's say, of, of you know, for, for your career of the future. You've got to look out. Bless you. Look out in 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 um, the world. What's happening? The trends. Look out in the future, you know, um, and um, look in. Yeah. Look into yourself. Look into you know the other parts. Just because we've used this, the right side of your brain, that that creativity, that that interpersonal, that self awareness. Yeah. And and then and then go back out again and see, okay, how does this uniqueness in me or what I'm interested in, what gets me jazzed, how can I play out in, in the world and, and, and you know, as 
you know, he said, if we learn less, we can discover more, right? And we how do we assume, how do, assume less? Assume less, assume less. We can discover more, right? So, you know, be open to other people's ideas, go in, look in, and keep this oscillation moving forward until we find our, our unique sort of position. Yeah. And that could be the career. Yeah, it, that's perfect. It's gonna, Going to be different different things down the road. Yeah, I I'm love fascinated it. by the automation piece, the AI. Yeah, me too. We got to dive. Can we dive into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, I know a few people we could talk to, so yeah, we'll get some people on here to talk about AI because it is fascinating and it's growing and growing and growing and growing and growing. It's insane. Uh, just in so, the interest of time, uh, yeah. let's let's maybe uh, kind of wrap up here and. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's so fantastic that he talked to us because so much insight, so much knowledge, so much like stuff that is just for so many people, um, like you said, science fiction becoming reality. But it is the future. Like I keep saying, the future is now. It's not <laughs> necessarily five years from now. Yeah. Well, thank you, Jamie. Imagine if dot, dot, dot. Hey. Thank you, Jamie. Thank you, everyone. And uh, we'll see you next time on Unpacking Digital Transformation. Thank you. Awesome. Cheers. Bye.